You know, I'm going to tell you all a real personal story. Um, in our house, we eat a lot of peanut butter. Does anybody else like peanut butter? A few of you? Well, I brought peanut butter from our cabinet, our pantry, peanut butter. Eat a lot. Mostly because I eat a lot of peanut butter. <laughs> I eat a lot of peanut butter. My protein shakes, I eat peanut butter almost every night before I go to bed uh, with bananas so it's healthy. Um, well, a few weeks ago, Katie went to the store to get some peanut butter uh, among everything else we get at the grocery store. When you got seven people in your house, you go to the store a lot. Uh, and uh, she grabbed some peanut butter and popped it in the pantry. And then they went out of town for a few days um, to go see, have some doctor's appointments, see family, help them out for a minute. And she got some peanut butter. And it was in the pantry, and I ran out, and so I grabbed it. The, did the labels on this look pretty close to the same? Wouldn't you say they look the same? Help me out. Yes, they look the same, all right? And when you're used to eating peanut butter every day and you go and you grab the next peanut butter in line and you pop it open, and, and what do I find in there only to discover the label doesn't say creamy, label says crunchy. If you're not a peanut butter aficionado, you don't, there's a difference. between. I see some heads. Hey, can I get an amen on that one? There's a difference between creamy and crunchy. That crunchy's better. Well, I, I, in eating it as, uh, the last few days, I have come to appreciate it more than I did before. Uh, and so I, they were out of town, so I'm going to go to the store, you know, and buy some things that, I'm, that I eat that nobody else in my house eats. So I, whenever they go out of town, I always go to the store and buy fish because nobody in the house likes fish but me. And when you cook it, the whole house smells like fish. So they're out of town. I go and buy fish and cook it. But I went to the store, got fish, and they grabbed me some more peanut butter. And I said, well, I'm going to put the, the crunchy in the back of the cabinet, and I'm going to eat it. So I opened it up, and you know what I bought? Crunchy. <laughs> so I had no room blaming my wife for buying the wrong kind when I bought the exact same kind she did. And then later on in the week, I did go buy some creamy because there's no way I thought my kids were going to eat this. Um, but labels are really, really helpful. They help you see. You've got to pay attention to them for them to, to work for them to be useful. Labels are good when you're talking about peanut butter. But when you're talking about people, it can be a problem. When you're talking about people, labels can create all kinds of issues. You could be looking at somebody and be thinking creamy when really they're crunchy. You can be looking at somebody and you've already in your mind made up what they are because of an experience you've had or maybe the way they've dressed, maybe the way they act maybe the way they're looking that day, and you've put a label on them, and so your experience and interaction with that person is based upon the label you've slapped on them. Or maybe somebody's put a label on you that's unfair and unjust, and at some point they've put a label on, on the kind of person you are, and, and depending on your generation, you kind of buck up against that and say, I'm absolutely not that, and you try to do the opposite to prove that label wrong. Labels are good except when it comes to people. But what we need to do when we're talking about labels is not be thinking about the labels that anybody has subconsciously that we have placed on somebody else. We need to be thinking about the label maker, the one who is the creator of labels. And that's where we're going to look today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 14 
today. If you're using a Bible on the pew rack in front of you, this is uh, on page 820, uh, Matthew chapter 14. Uh, We're talking about labels, the label maker, Jesus, the originator of this concept uh, of calling somebody something. But what Jesus would do is he would call something in putting a label. He would call something out of someone they didn't even know they had to begin with. And so here in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus has been with his disciples for a little while. And they've been going around. He's been doing miracles. He's been teaching. He's been amazing everybody in the world, including his own disciples. And he has just fed the 5,000, 5,000 men. There's also women and children in the crowd. Some estimates say 10,000, 12,000, 15,000 total people there. Um, Jesus just fed them all with one little kid's lunch. And the disciples gathered up all the extras And uh, so they've witnessed this. They've experienced this. All 12 of those disciples have experienced this, Judas included. And that's something we often forget is Judas went day by day with Jesus in and out in all the mess. And he saw everything. He saw the miracles. He saw the amazement. He got the same amount of teaching that Peter did, the same investment from Jesus, although Jesus knew where Judas would end up. And Jesus has just fed these 5,000. And he's about to send his disciples away so he can have some alone time, as we all need from time to time. But the thing was, before they even fed the 5,000, Jesus received some, some disturbing news. His friend, his relative, John the Baptist, had been killed in prison. John the Baptist had told the man in charge, the governing official, that he was living incorrectly in what he was doing. And so that guy put John the Baptist in jail And to save face, ultimately, he killed John the Baptist. And this news reached Jesus, and so Jesus was going to go, and he was going to spend some time in prayer because he received this news. And in the midst of going to spend time with Jesus, uh, spend time with with God, he was interrupted by this crowd, and he taught them all day long, and they were hungry, and so then he fed them. And so that need within him, that desire within him to still go and spend time in prayer was still there. And so he gets done ministering and expending all this great spiritual energy, and he's going to dismiss the crowd of, you know, 10, 15,000 people by himself and, and send his disciples off away from him so he can spend some alone time. And so this is where we get in Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him, to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Now, I don't know about you guys, but you know, some of us have been quarantined for a while with, with certain people in our houses, and sometimes you may want to get away or lock a door and go in the bathroom and hide for a minute. Jesus couldn't do that. I mean, imagine being locked in a, in a one place with Peter 24-7. It would be kind of frustrating. You want to get away for a little bit. But Jesus sends the disciples ahead of him on a boat, and he dismisses the crowd because, again, he's going to spend some time alone. Verse 23, after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Now, leave that verse up for a minute. The boat was a long way from land. You know, what this means, I mean, this was a big lake. Uh, They're most likely what we see in other gospels retelling of this. They're about three or four miles from land. I mean, they are in the middle of the lake. 
and they're out there. And it says that the wind was against them. They're being beaten by the waves. The nature itself is fighting against them. We learn from, from one of the other gospels telling this story that they've been rowing because they, the wind is going against them. They can't put the sails up to get across. And so they've been rowing for hours and hours and hours, three or four miles against the wind, against the current. The waves are against them. And they've been rowing all this time. They're exhausted. And they're out there in the middle of this lake. So that's where they are, being beaten by the waves, wind fighting against the direction they are going. That word there, uh, beaten by the waves, that word beaten literally means to be tormented with open hostility. So they're being tormented that this hostility directed at them by nature itself. And look at how long they've been doing this. Verse 25. In the fourth watch of the night, that's 3 to 6 a.m. They've been going for a long time. Okay, I mean, we're talking, you know, five, six, seven hours. They've been rowing out to the middle of this lake. So in the fourth watch of the night, between 3 and 6 a.m., he came to them, that's Jesus, walking on the sea. Now, we may read this, and, and if you've ever read this before, or maybe you've never read this before, even people who don't believe in Jesus or believe in God have heard this account before, Jesus walking on water. This is famous. But picture it from their perspective, okay? They've never heard of anybody walking on water before. It's, I mean, the concept has never floated to them. No one's ever thought that it was possible. It just doesn't happen walking. It, 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 it just doesn't work. Not even in their vernacular as a phrase, oh, walking on water. They, they didn't have any of that. And so here comes Jesus, and Matthew just writes it in there like it's nothing. Let's see, where, uh, verse 25. He came to them walking on the sea like it's easy. He just, and Matthew, who wrote this gospel, is in the boat. He's one of the guys watching this happen. Jesus comes to them walking on the sea in the midst of the waves, in the midst of the wind. Here comes Jesus walking on the sea. Verse 26. Look at how the disciples, though, when they see Jesus, what they do. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. <laughs> There's a lot in that. Jesus comes to them walking on the sea. They have no concept of anyone ever being able to do this. And so their instinctive gut reaction is to think this Jesus is a ghost. It's ghost. Never mind ghosts aren't real, but they have been trained by their superstitious culture to believe that ghosts are real and that ghosts are evil. And so they see Jesus, who is the epitome of good, coming out on the sea, and they respond by labeling him as something evil, as something bad, as something that does not exist, as a ghost. Jesus does something unfamiliar to them, and so they label him as what is good as bad when Jesus presents himself in a way they're not familiar with, in a way they don't have any experience with, in something that is completely out of the norm in the midst of their struggle, in the midst of their fear, when they are exhausted, he presents himself to them in a way they're un, not familiar with, and they say, it's a ghost. It's a ghost, Jesus, it's a ghost. They label him this out of fear as something evil. But this isn't the first time that we see one of the Trinity on water. All the way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, when it says the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the waters. You know what that word hovering means? Literally in the Hebrew, to move gently over. To move gently over. 
So it's not necessarily this is unprecedented. It's, it's that the disciples were unfamiliar with it. So Jesus is moving gently over the water. He's walking. Walking is not, you know, an aggressive behavior, although, I mean, I can say that. Anybody ever seen an aggressive walker before? I've seen, yeah. I've seen some they're aggressive walkers, like they're going to stomp on your face. But Jesus, that's not what we get the impression from Jesus. He's walking at a leisurely pace. He's just walking across the water, which is also interesting. You never see Jesus running anywhere. How often, though, in our world today do we run everywhere? Whether we run in our minds or we run physically or we just try to get there as fast as possible and it drives us nuts when it takes us seven minutes to get to Walmart when it should take us six and we just lose it. You know, but Jesus walked everywhere. The Son of God who came to the earth to die for our sins and rose from the dead was never in a hurry. He was walking. And even in the middle of the storm, and his disciples are freaking out, and they're labeling him as a ghost, he's still just walking. He's still, he's just walking out on the sea. It's easy. He's just walking. He's walking out there. You see, with, when they label him as a ghost, they miss what God's about to do because labels can miss God's purpose. Labels can easily miss God's purpose. When God sends us, maybe God is sending us someone in our lives who is supposed to have influence over us and direct us to God, but because we've put a label on that person, we're missing God's purpose in introducing them to us because we don't like the way they look. We don't like the way they walk. We don't like the way they dress. We don't like that they're from a different city. We don't like that they're from a different state. We don't like that they had COVID two weeks ago. We don't like, we don't like, we don't like. And so we label them and don't allow their influence on us because maybe God put them in our lives for a purpose. Labels can easily miss God's purpose. They label Jesus a ghost and miss the fact that it's Jesus. Walking, how, how many times, don't raise your hand, do you think you have missed Jesus' presence in your life because you mislabeled him being there as something else? This is, let's go a different route. How many times do you think you've missed Jesus in church because you mislabeled the expression as ungodly, non-traditional, weird, the preacher's preaching in sneakers. That is anti-Jesus. You laugh because I've been doing it for a long time. <laughs> when we mislabel the way something is presented, we may miss the opportunity he provides. We're not mislabeling, you know, I mean, Jesus is Jesus. How he's presented is not the issue. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You guys like the way this guy preaches. You guys like the way this guy preaches. You guys like the way this guy preaches. It doesn't matter. They're preaching Jesus. It's the same thing when it comes to a church service, when it comes to music style. Is it about Jesus? Good. If I have trouble worshiping because it's a different style or because it's a different, you know, you know tone in the way it's preached, then that's on me and not the way it's being done. If it's on Jesus, then it's good. One of the most famous sermons of all time is called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. And you know what history tells us? He read it in monotone from a piece of paper. How would y'all like that if I got up here and did that on Sundays? Monotone. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. 
one of the most famous sermons in the history of the world. Because the power's not in the presentation, the power's in Jesus. That's where it's at. That's where it's at. So Jesus, he's walking on water, and the disciples are labeling him as a ghost. There's God's purpose for them. It's a ghost. It's not from God. And they're having a cow in the boat. They label Jesus. They miss Jesus. And we do that when we label other people. We may miss God's purpose. Or when other people label us, and then we, in reaction, label them because they labeled us first, and we miss God's purpose in that interaction. And so here we have these guys. And Jesus, though, doesn't let them stew in their mislabeling. Look at verse 27. Immediately, here's that word again, immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now I read that verse and I think, you know, the waves are, are, are hitting their little boat. The wind is howling. It's very noisy. How close do you think Jesus was to the boat for them to be able to hear him? I mean, he's not like 200 yards away. I mean, he's got to be close enough for them to be able to hear him over all of that. He's that close, and they still think it's a ghost. And he says, it's, it's I. It's, it's Jesus. Don't be afraid. There's no reason to be afraid. And naturally, the one to speak up is Peter. Now, <laughs> I find this great because Matthew, another disciple, wrote this. And he only writes about Peter talking. He doesn't write what any of the other disciples were saying at the moment. They may have been telling Peter to be quiet. Don't anger the ghost. They may have been, 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 you know, having all kinds of issues in the boat. But all he mentions is Peter. Look at what Peter says. Answers Jesus when he says, do not be afraid. It's a, it is I. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you and walk on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now, if you've read this before, it's familiar territory, and you, your mind, you may have clicked your mind off in that moment, but think about it for a second. You're in the middle of this storm, crazy wind, crazy waves, and Peter's gut reaction in seeing Jesus and having Jesus say that it identify himself, it's me, Jesus, Peter's reaction is like, okay, tell me to walk on water too. If it's me and I'm in the boat and Jesus says, it's me, don't, don't be afraid, I'm thinking, okay, stop the storm. And let's get out of this situation. Bring out the sun so I can see you better. But Peter's reaction had nothing to do with stopping the storm, had nothing to do with any of that. His reaction was, greatest Jesus, I want to walk on water too. I want to do the miracle thing too. I want to do the thing that no one's ever seen anybody do before. I want to jump out and I want to walk on water too. If it's you, Jesus, tell me to come. If it's you, Jesus, give me an invitation. If it's you, Jesus, let's do this together. So Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the water and came to Jesus. There, again, the way Matthew describes it, it's very mundane. Peter got out of the boat and walked on water. It doesn't say that Peter left out of the boat. It doesn't say that Peter carefully got out of the boat and kind of felt the water. It doesn't say any of that. It just says that Peter got out of the boat and walked on water. Peter got out of the boat and came to Jesus. You know why he was able to walk on water? Because initially, his eyes are fixed on Jesus. His eyes are fixed on Jesus. So 
when Peter got out of the boat, it didn't matter the wind. It didn't matter the waves. It didn't matter that no one's ever walked on water before Jesus doing it in their minds here. All that mattered was he's seeing Jesus. He sees Jesus. He hears Jesus say, come to me. And then Peter takes a step and starts walking. Walking where he should not be able to walk. Peter... He wanted to, to imitate Jesus. He wanted to experience what this miracle with Jesus, along with Jesus. He wanted to experience Jesus' power in a way he's never seen before. And so he steps out here. And when Jesus invited Peter and said, come, Jesus was labeling Peter as faithful, full of faith. He says, come, Peter. Jesus knew Peter was going to do it because he knew Peter had the faith enough to do it. And so Jesus, in saying come, is labeling Peter as full of faith. He was seeing Jesus, and that drove the wind and the waves and the logical impossibility of what he was about to do from his mind. And all he could see was Jesus, and he went ahead and did it. And he did it before anybody could say that's impossible, before anybody could say that's, yeah, that can't be done, before anybody could say anything else, Peter just did it because his eyes were on Jesus. Not on the other disciples, not on the wind, not on the waves. He wasn't thinking, you know, in a few decades, Matthew's going to write this down and tell this story. He wasn't thinking about any of that. All he was thinking about in the moment was my Jesus said come. And so he got out of the boat. You see, what can also happen is that even though labels can make us miss God's purpose, Labels from Jesus can empower God's purpose. Labels from Jesus, my creator, can empower God's purpose in my life. Somebody else may say you can't do that, but Jesus says you can, and you'll find that you can. Somebody else may say, well, you're not very smart, but Jesus says, I am, you go with me. Somebody else may say, your, your, your vision of accomplishing that specific thing is ridiculous. But Jesus says, I gave you that vision, and I'm going to see it realized. It's labels from Jesus empower God's purpose. Labels from other people may drag us down and staple our feet to the ground. Jesus wants to take us somewhere we've never been before. He wants to see something accomplished that's never been accomplished before. Jesus told Peter that he will build his church. Jesus will build it. That's what he promised. He will do the building. I won't do the building. You won't do the building. Jesus said he will build his church. That means saving people and bringing them into his body. He will do it if we're willing to step out of the boat and follow him wherever he wants us to go. But we've got to listen to his labels and not somebody else's labels. Listen to his voice and not somebody else's voice. I was talking to one of my sons this morning. And sometimes people will say all kinds of things and want you to do all kinds of things because everybody thinks they know what's best for your life. But all that matters is you're listening to Jesus and where he's got you to go and the path that he set you on. You say, yeah, but I made this mistake in my past, you know, last week, a few months ago, last year, and, and I'm in a position now in my life that's not so great because of a decision I made. But if you're still breathing, Jesus still has a purpose for you and you're not done. And so you've still got something to accomplish. You've still got something to do for him. You're only done when you're not here anymore. If you're still here, he still has something for you to do. He still has a purpose for you to accomplish. And Jesus invites us to take that step of faith out of the security of the boat 
out of what is comfortable or out of what we have grown to be comfortable with. And he, he invites us to step out of the boat, invites us to go with him. But something happens to Peter. The second that he takes his eyes off of Jesus, his faith crumbles, and world's power all around him tries to kill him. Verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Which is interesting to note, that's the very first time Jesus is called Son of God in his ministry. That's the first time somebody calls him the Son of God. After he walked on water and stopped the storm. They call him Son of God. But look at that. It says, immediately Jesus reached out his hand, verse 31, and took hold of him. So Jesus took hold of Peter when Peter was too distracted by the wind and the waves trying to drown him to grab a hold of Jesus. Jesus took hold of Peter. That, I think that's very interesting. Peter, I mean, imagine you're walking on water, and then all of a sudden you realize you can't walk on water. How fast are you going to sink? Pretty quick. You ever jump off a diving board? How fast do you go under? Pretty fast. And so Peter immediately falls in, and Jesus, it says, reaches out and grabs him. Before Peter can grab back, before Peter can reach out to Jesus, Peter is, he, remember, he took his eyes off of Jesus. He's not looking at Jesus anymore. But Jesus is there, and he reaches out and grabs Peter and pulls him up. Have you ever tried to rescue somebody in the water or grab a hold of somebody in the water? If they don't want to go with you, they're not going to go with you. It's, it's, you, you can't, you're, it's the way water works. If they're fighting and they're doing all their mess and, and trying to do everything and they're bopping you in the face, you're not going to be able to pull them out. Peter had to be willing to go with Jesus' reach in order for Jesus to pull him out. Jesus did reach out and grab Peter. But if Peter didn't want to go, it wouldn't have happened. Peter was willing to go with Jesus. Jesus pulled Peter back. They both got into the boat and everything stopped. And the disciples' response was, this is the Son of God. Jesus will not leave you to drown under the weights of the world. He will not leave you out there by yourself. He will never leave you or forsake you. Joshua 1.5, Hebrews 13.5, he will never leave you or forsake you, ever, ever. He will chase you down, reach out his hand, take hold of you, and give you an opportunity to turn to him every time. Even Jonah in the belly of the whale, when he turned to Jesus, was Jesus there? Yes. One of the whole chapters of, of the book of Jonah is about Jonah singing praises to God about God's presence being with him when he's drowning and then when the fish swallows him. God's there if we turn to him. His hand is reaching out to us. If we're willing to go with him, we can go. He's always there. He will always be with us, and he will lead us to fulfill this purpose in him. And yet, you see, Peter took his eyes off of Jesus, and that led him to sink. He allowed the distractions that were around him to prevent him from seeing Jesus. 
If Jesus is always with us, then, then distractions can prevent us from listening to Jesus or hearing Jesus or seeing Jesus or feeling Jesus or walking on water, whatever that may look like in your life. Distractions pull us away. All kinds of things distract us. Fear distracts, as it did with Peter. He was afraid. Fear distracts us. The ways of the world distract us. Culture distracts us. Politics distract us. The news distracts us. Social media distracts us. The pride of life distracts us. And that prevents us from seeing Jesus. And then we slip under the waves of this world as they try to kill us. And all of that distraction is attempting to drown you so that you cannot fulfill your miraculous purpose for which Jesus calls you to fulfill. Peter took his eyes off of Jesus and sank instantly. Instantly. He is walking. Have you ever walked on water? I had never walked on water. But here's Peter walking on, I mean, I would just, I'm walking on water, and instantly I would have sank. It would have been right there, one step, gone. But Peter takes steps, and he's walking on water, walking to Jesus, not amazed at what he's doing, just amazed that he's seeing Jesus. And he's able to do this miraculous thing. If we keep our eyes on Jesus, we can do far more than walk on water. If we keep our eyes on Jesus, his heart, his love, his grace, his mercy, his compassion, we can do far more than walk on water. There's a scripture that refers to this. It's in Hebrews chapter 12. This is what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. This is the distractions. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. You know what that word clings so closely literally means in the original language? To control tightly. To control tightly. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which controls us so tightly. Let's, let, let, let's push away all of the distractions and look only at Jesus, which it says... Let us run with endurance. Is that walking? No, it says run with endurance. Run with endurance the rate that is set before us, doing what? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So laying aside the, the weight, the distractions, the sin, we can, we can, what it says there in verse 1, run with endurance if we are looking at Jesus. If we are, you don't, you know, you don't instantly start running. You've got to walk first. But Peter didn't even know he could walk on water. He, he didn't even know he could do that. All he was doing is looking at Jesus, and then he was able to walk. But here we see the author of Hebrews tells us if we are looking to Jesus, we can run with endurance, run with Jesus, for Jesus, in Jesus, looking to Jesus. Look to Jesus, and you will run when you didn't even know you could walk. If you're looking at Jesus, then you, can, you, you may not even be realizing that you're running, but you're running because you're looking at Jesus, not focused on what you're doing, not focused on, 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 on where you are. You're just going. I remember in college, I had a, a Marine roommate. And I'd go running with him 
I've told you all about him before. His name was Joe Officer. He used to get razzed in, in the Marines because his name was Officer. They'd say, you got the name, but do you have the skill? And, and he would go, and he, we, we'd, we'd go running. And I was a very unskilled runner. And so I'm, you know, in tennis shoes and shorts and a shirt, and he's out there in full fatigues and boots and a, 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 a backpack loaded down, and he's going faster than me. And I'm really huffing and puffing, and he's screaming at me, Herwick, just look at the horizon and just go. And we're, we, we, were, we were at Dallas Baptist University, and all around it, there's all these hills, and we're just going up and down these hills and running all over the place. And we get back, and I feel like I'm dying, and I fall down, and I say, how far did we go? And he measures it out, looks it up, and says, we went seven miles. Seven miles. I don't. I. That's. I. I can't even go walks. I can't even think seven miles. I had no idea that I was going that far until we got there, because of the one that I was with. If you're running with Jesus, you won't even realize you're running. But if your eyes are on Jesus, that's all that matters. But you say, okay, if I look at Jesus, look to. What does that mean? Look to. I can't physically see Jesus. I can't physically, so what does it mean to look to Jesus and you will run when you didn't even know you could walk? Well, I've been asking that question all week. I'm going to give you an answer. I didn't have an answer until last night. Uh, the way I typically work on sermons is I've been working on this one, had it for several weeks, and then uh, God gave me the, the rough outline by the end of Monday, and I've been praying, God, what does it look like to look to Jesus? Look to Jesus, and you will run when you didn't know you could. What, what does it mean, look to Jesus? Well, last night, right before I went to bed, I saw it on Instagram. I saw it, and it was like God spoke to me and said, there it is. There it is. And so I went and immediately wrote it down in my, my journal so I wouldn't forget it, which sure enough, when I got up this morning, I had forgotten that I had thought that the night before, and I opened my journal. Oh, oh, that's right. There it is. So I'm glad I did that. And so I pulled it out, and God gave me some scripture to go with it, but this is what it is. To look to Jesus, you will run when you didn't know you could walk. Let me say the phrase first, and I'll show you where it says it in Scripture. What consumes your mind controls your life. What consumes your mind controls your life. If Jesus consumes your mind, he will control your life. But if, what, if your mind is consumed about worries about a virus, that's going to control your life. If your mind is consumed about what the presidential election is going to look like, that's going to control your life and your attitude and how you interact with your family or your neighbors or the people around you. What consumes your mind will control your life. God said this in Joshua chapter 1. I didn't give him this scripture because God gave me the scripture this morning. Joshua chapter 1, verse, five, uh, verse 8. God speaking to Joshua. And he says, uh, The book of the law, scripture, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then he will make your way prosperous, and you will have good success. Prosperity and success, as God defines it, not as humanity defines it. Prosperity and success, as God defines it. You will have it. There he goes. Mike is quick on the draw back there. He's got it on the screens. Uh, you will have good success and prosperity if the word of the law, if scripture is in you. 
is in you. If you meditate on it, that means to think about it consistently. Allow it to consume your mind. If Scripture and God's Word and God's presence through prayer is consuming your mind, then that will control your life. God's Spirit will control your life. And what does he say? He will make your way prosperous. You will make your way prosperous by doing this, and you will have good success in God's plan. If you're listening to God's voice, following God's direction, you will have success in God's plan for you. Or, as we saw earlier in the uh, Matthew passage, Matthew chapter 14, you will fulfill God's purpose for you. What consumes your mind controls your life. If your, li- if your mind is consumed with external things, if your mind is consumed by your job, then that will control your life. You know, we read about Paul, the apostle. Was, he was, the, as far as we can tell, the greatest missionary we've ever seen. He went all over the place, started churches all over the place. We have these letters in the New Testament that he wrote to all these people, and this is scripture, and it encourages us and points us to Jesus constantly. Great missionary, but was that his career? No. It tells us, what, in one or two places that he made tents for a living. But that wasn't who he was. He was a believer who told people about Jesus. His career did not define him. His career was not his label. His label was follower of Jesus, and Jesus was able to do something in him that he never thought was possible. So what is the label you're following after? Is it a label somebody else placed on you? Is it one you placed on yourself? Is it one social media has put on you? Is it one your parents put on you years and years and years ago that you've been carrying around in the back of your mind? Is it one somebody said about you in a comment on social media a few days ago and you didn't even realize that it had sunk so deep in you, but it's been consuming your thoughts? Jesus has a different label for you, one that's mixed in grace and mercy and freedom, one that allows you to not just walk on water, but run when you didn't even know you could walk. So will you listen to Jesus or listen to something else? What label will you read? Will you listen to the label maker or one who hijacks a label? For their own purposes. Whom will you follow? Will you follow Jesus or not? Will you step in Jesus or not? Will you walk in the miracle or not? Whatever your life was yesterday, whatever your life was a week ago, whatever your family life and the turmoil that may have been going on one week ago, from this moment, you may have been having chaos. And it was... Fear-induced, straight-from-the-enemy distraction. But you're hearing a word from the Lord, not from me, from Scripture, from the Lord, that you can step on water today. If you look to Jesus, where are you looking? What's consuming your mind? Maybe for the very first time, you need to follow Jesus today. You need to listen to Jesus today and say, I will believe. I will follow you. I will step out of the boat because I, for the first time, am encountering you in the same way these disciples were and say, you are the Son of God. So maybe today it's your step. You need to believe in Jesus, that he died for your sins. All of them, even the ones you're going to do in 10 years. He's already died for them. 
And then he rose from the dead so that you can live after you die. And if you believe that, then you're a Christian. You're a follower of Jesus. Then your place in heaven is written forever. Forever. There's nothing you can do tomorrow that can undo what Jesus already did. It's taken care of. You can be a follower of Jesus. And you believe and you want to be baptized? Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism shows the world you belong to him. And you want to do that? We can do it. The baptistry's it's full. You saw it already this morning. I didn't baptize, so it's warm. And we can go ahead and take care of it now. If you want to be baptized, we can do it today. We can do it this very, if you, you want to come in a minute after I pray and say, hey, man, I believe in Jesus and I want to be baptized. Or you say, I want to believe in Jesus right now. Let's go and do it. We got some T-shirts right over there. We can throw one on you. We got some towels already up there. They're good and dry. We can go and take care of it right this very second. You want to come be a part of this church. Be part of what God's doing here. He's doing stuff here today. He's been doing stuff in the lives of people this week. I told you about some people joining the church before church even started. He's going to be doing stuff this, this weekend. You need to be a part of it. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, 6 to 8, people are going to get saved right here in this room. This is going to be a birthing room. You need to come be a part of that. God is going to be doing things in great ways. Are you ready to be a part of it? you got to look to Jesus to see it. So will you look to Jesus today?